Americans care about democracy, just not enough to save it. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Liz Gilbert, in today for Ron Steslow. This is the weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they are shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, Politicology's favorite psychology professor, Katherine Sanderson. Katherine holds a PhD in psychology from Princeton University and is now the Polar Family Professor and Chair of the Psychology Department at Amherst College. She's the author of a terrific book called Why We Act, Turning Bystanders into Moral Rebels. Katherine, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for the invitation to return. And also returning to the roundup is Matt Bennett. Matt is a co-founder of Third Way and Executive Vice President for Public Affairs. He earned his JD from UVA Law. He's a veteran of both of Bill Clinton's presidential campaigns and served as Deputy Assistant to the President for Intergovernmental Affairs in the Clinton White House. Matt, it's great to have you on the show. Well, thanks for having me back. On this week's Roundup, first, we'll discuss the January 6th committee's last scheduled hearing and their decision to subpoena Donald Trump. Next up, we'll discuss the big news this week in the most closely watched Senate races this cycle. Then we'll discuss President Obama's warning to Democrats not to be a buzzkill. And finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers only, we're going to discuss anti-Semitism from former President Donald Trump and Kanye West. Quite a bit to go over today. I'm looking forward to this discussion with you all. If you want to join us for that and a lot more, A Politicology Plus subscription gets you into our private, ad-free version of this podcast, where we publish additional conversations about strategy and analysis not available on the public show. There are two ways you can get it. If you're listening to us in the Apple Podcasts app, you can navigate to the Politicology show and tap the button that says Try Free. Or you can also sign up directly with us at politicology.com slash plus. We'll dig in right after this. After more than a year of investigations, the January 6th committee held what could be its final public hearing last week, and it ended with a bang. The committee voted to subpoena former President Donald Trump. The hearing itself did not feature any live witnesses, but it did include never-before-seen footage and documents the committee had collected during the two months since the last public hearing. One of the biggest news stories that came out of the hearing were the videos of Speaker Nancy Pelosi and other congressional leaders reacting to the attack in real time. Pelosi's daughter, Alexandra, an Emmy-nominated documentary filmmaker, was filming the day's events as part of a project she was working on. Speaker Pelosi, Senators Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell, and the number two Republican in the House are all shown speaking to the Department of Defense. Speaker Pelosi also spoke with former Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, the acting attorney general and Vice President Pence. Here's a clip of that audio. We have got to get Senator Schumer, is at a secure location? and they're locked down in the Senate. There has to be some way we can maintain the sense that people have that there's uh, some security or some confidence uh, that government can function and that we can elect the President of the United States. 
Did we go back into session? We did go back into session, but now apparently everybody on the floor is putting on tear gas masks to prepare for a breach. Well, I'm trying to get more information. They're putting on their tear gas masks. They're breaking windows and going in, uh, uh, obviously ransacking our offices and all the rest of that. That's nothing. The, uh, the concern we have about uh, personal harm, safety. personal safety is it just transcends everything. But the fact is, on any given day, they're breaking the law in many different ways. And quite frankly, much of it at the instigation of the President of the United States. This cannot be just we're waiting for so-and-so. We need them there now, whoever you got. You okay. have. You also have troops. This is Stony Hoyer. Troops. Okay. So we have a Fort little bit of time Air, to make that decision. Andrews Air Force Base. All right. Other military bases. Thank you. We Thanks, need Paul. active Bye. duty National Guard. How soon in the future can you have the place evacuated, pulled out, cleaned out? I, I don't want to speak for the leadership that's going to be that's responsible for executing the, uh, the, the operation, so I'm not going to say that because they are being on the ground and they're the actors. Well, just pretend, just pretend for a moment it was the Winnebog or the White House or some other entity that was under siege. And let me say, you can logistically get people there as you make the plan. We're trying to figure out how we can get this job done today. We talked to Mitch about it earlier. He, uh, he's not in the room right now, but he was with us earlier uh, and said, you know, we want to expedite this and hopefully they could confine it to just one complaint, Arizona, and then we could vote and, and that would be, you know, then just move forward with the rest of the state. The overriding wish is to do it at the Capitol. What we are being told very directly is it's going to take days for the Capitol to be okay again. We've gotten a very bad report about the condition of, of the um, house floor with defecation and all that kind of thing as well. I don't think that that's hard to clean up, but I do think it is uh, more from a security standpoint of making sure that everybody is out of the building and how long will that take. I don't know that it will ever get less shocking hearing all of that from from that day. So my my first question is is to both of you. Curious for your reactions to hearing these lawmakers respond to the attack in real time. And uh, Catherine, I'll start with you. So my first response was frankly, there's lots of you know anecdotal reports of people saying women are too emotional to be president or to be in leadership. And gosh. Nancy Pelosi is just, you know, cool as a cucumber. You know, this is what we have to do next, uh, et cetera. So it actually made me feel really good that you had somebody so level-headed and clear, even during what must have been an intentionally emotional time. So I got to be honest, that was my very first response was way to go, Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. And and Matt, how about you? Uh, I was struck by that too. And, and also that... Uh, all of the leaders that we heard from in those clips uh, all happen to be Democrats. But from what we know from the committee and from other evidence is that the Republicans acted in a responsible way also. That Pence did the right thing by staying at the Capitol, refusing Secret Service requests that he'd be taken elsewhere, because they all understood that they could not let the mob win. And they all understood that 
that the capital is the the kind of most important piece that it's a cathedral of democracy and it was being desecrated and this needed to end immediately. So what happened in private with both Democrats and Republicans was exactly what one would hope, that they did their jobs and they did it responsibly and well. And then unfortunately what happened in public is that they went out there and either helped the mob achieve its aims or um, lied about it. And so that's the most dispiriting disconnect. So he also learned from the committee that the Secret Service was concerned about the threat of violence in the days leading up to January 6th, and that they became very concerned about Vice President Pence's safety during the insurrection. One tip the Secret Service received indicated that the Proud Boys, quote, think they will have a large enough group to march into D.C., armed and will outnumber the police so that they cannot be stopped. Their plan is to literally kill people. Please, please take this tip seriously and investigate further, end quote. So going back to both of you, Matt, I'll start with you this time. What was your reaction to learning that the Secret Service was warned about the potential for violence on January the 6th? I mean, I was shocked, but I've been shocked by a lot of the revelations coming out of the Secret Service in the Trump era. Uh, I worked in the White House. Uh, my first job in the White House was I traveled with Vice President Gore. So I worked every single day with the vice president's protective detail. They were incredibly professional and spectacular at their jobs. And so I've been appalled by what we've seen from some of the leadership of the Secret Service. Some of them took political jobs in the Trump White House. At least one of them did that. Uh, there was all kinds of uh, weird things happening with them as it relates to their text messages on January 6th. And now we hear that they weren't paying significant attention to these very realistic and, and turns out uh, very real tips that were coming in that could have put their protectees at harm. And so I was pretty surprised. Catherine, what about you? So what strikes me in learning about what the Secret Service was aware of, had heard about, is how much worse the day could have been. I mean, because we all sort of think about it. I mean, Liz, you started by saying every time you hear the you know recordings or hear about it, it's just horrible. Right. And boy, right. you it's like it's almost like thank goodness. Thank goodness that what happened was only what happened. And that, you know, Mike Pence wasn't shot or, you know, something else. So it really strikes me as it, it's so very clear how it really, really could have been horrific. I could like talk to you both about this forever. So we'll continue forward. I just, it's like, especially with, with everything that's coming out this week, you know, even just yesterday with the Washington Post talking about, you know, Trump knowing just how bad the things he was doing and saying he knew how bad it was, right. And kept moving forward. And so I'm just so interested kind of to see what happens next. So all nine members of the committee approved a resolution that would compel Donald Trump to testify about the attack finally. And before the vote, Chairman Bernie Thompson said, quote, he must be held accountable. He is required to answer for his actions. On Tuesday, Liz Cheney said that the committee will issue a subpoena to Trump shortly while she was speaking to the Harvard Institute of Politics. It's pretty unlikely that Trump will actually comply with the subpoena, but very curious both for your thoughts on that, Matt, and also how you think this could impact the political landscape truly this close to such a critical midterm election. 
Well, first of all, I don't think it's going to have any impact on the midterm election. I think uh, the committee has, unfortunately, in my view, faded from public view in a fairly significant way. When they were hosting, when they're holding the hearings in August, uh, some of them in prime time, they were getting a lot of attention. But uh, I think that's pretty much come to an end. So I don't think it's going to have huge political implications. I am a little worried about the subpoena because, as you say, there's almost no chance that Trump will comply with it. And if he chooses to fight it, there's no chance at all that uh, he will end up being compelled to testify because unless some miracle occurs and Democrats retain control of Congress and then choose to, uh, you know, start the committee process again in the new Congress in January. I think the odds of those two things happening are near zero. So Trump won't be testifying. Um, and I am of the view that Congress should avoid doing things that they know they're going to fail at. And so I think issuing the subpoena when they know it's not going to be honored is is not a great bet. I, I love that mantra, right, that Congress should avoid doing things that they know they won't be successful at. I think that needs to go on a on a bumper sticker um, for this election cycle and and far beyond. Um, this wasn't in the clip the committee showed, but there was another clip of Speaker Pelosi from January sixth that was released last week. Let's take a quick listen. They have dissuaded him from coming to Capitol Hill. They told him they don't have the resources to protect him here. So at the moment he is not coming, but that could change. Oh, he comes. I'm going to punch him out. This is my mom. I would pay to see that. Waiting for this for trespassing on the Capitol grounds. I'm going to punch him out and I'm going to go to jail and I'm going to be happy. So, Catherine, especially in light of your comments from earlier in the episode, again, I couldn't agree more about the stigma of women in politics and their overreaction and, you know, all, all of this and Nancy Pelosi staying cool as a cucumber. But hearing this clip, I'm curious, what is your reaction to this clip? So, you know, I think it's hysterical in a sense, right? Because she's saying, like, he didn't have the courage to go to the Capitol. But of course, like, we didn't want him at the Capitol, right? And and had he been at the Capitol, that would have only escalated things, you know, in extraordinarily dangerous kinds of ways. I think she was appropriately thinking, I, I sort of think about it with her mom slash grandmother hat on. Um, I, I think about a quote from her, I think early in Trump's presidency, that was something about, you know, I, I'm used to dealing with toddlers and you don't give them what they want or something like that. And I sort of felt like her comment was very much, you know, spoken as you you might speak to a child in that sense. It's been a big news week in some of the most closely watched Senate races. During a debate in Georgia, Senator Warnock pointed out that he has never pretended to be a police officer like his opponent, Herschel Walker. That prompted Walker to pull out a badge he got for being an honorary sheriff's deputy. Catherine, I'm going to turn this one over to you. Walker is not new to scandal. There have been accusations of domestic violence. There was the revelation a couple weeks ago that he paid for an ex-girlfriend's abortion. There hasn't been a huge dip in his polling numbers. What allows candidates to keep voters with them, even despite scandals? So I will say the Georgia Senate race is, I think, one of the most depressing things ever uh, because it really does, I think, create the sense of Saturday Night Live skits can't possibly really do justice to what's happening in Georgia. The idea that he pulled out that badge, the idea of the the um, absentee father, so not just the paying for the abortion, and lying about it. And, you know, I don't know this woman. Oh, wait, except I did have that other child with her. Um, and 
it, to me, it's extraordinarily depressing. And I guess in psychology, we would talk about this as a, as a great example of cognitive dissonance. Once you've decided that you support Herschel Walker, you're going to keep supporting Herschel Walker. And it's not dissimilar, of course, to what happened with the Access Hollywood tapes in October of 2016, where people who previously had said character matters, you know, how could you possibly, you know, continue supporting somebody who was literally caught on tape, you know, saying, saying what he said. And to me, Herschel Walker is proving that point again and again and again. Once you like your candidate, there is almost nothing that can happen that will dissuade you from that view. And, and I'm saying almost, but I'm literally kind of thinking about, do I have to say the word almost? I mean, I don't, I don't know. I I hope that the word almost can be there. I'm not totally sure it is. Matt, what about you? What are your thoughts? It is remarkable that somebody as almost comically unqualified to be senator as Herschel Walker is not only a legitimate candidate to win, but he may be favored to win. Um, And uh, not only is he unqualified because he is a bad person who has committed horrific acts of domestic violence, and uh, not only because he is a hypocrite, but... uh, and, and not only because he can barely string a sentence together or shows um, toy badges on stage as if they're real. My biggest problem with Walker, especially around the news that he paid for the abortion, isn't the hypocrisy. It is the presumption that because he is a rich, powerful man, that he gets to do whatever is convenient. But if you are a poor woman in the state of Georgia— you have to live with whatever rules that he feels like imposing. And and he doesn't have to play by those rules. It is hypocrisy, but it's worse than hypocrisy. It is is a worldview that says powerful people have one set of rules and the dispossessed have a different. And that's the worst thing about Walker. And the irony is he's running against a very good person. I mean, the guy is the senior (laughs) pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church uh, and and is an excellent senator uh, who has like six degrees, including a PhD, and is brilliant and incredibly articulate. And the contrast is breathtakingly enormous, and the race is tied. So uh, to that point about the race being tied and just the— the, the sheer on paper differences between these candidates. I mean, Matt, wh- why do you think this race might still be so close at this time? Georgia is a red state. Uh, it feels like a purple state because Biden won it narrowly and because we won the two Senate races in the runoff last time by the skin of our teeth. Uh, but it's red. Let's face it. It is, uh, it is mostly outside of Atlanta and, you know, little tiny spots of blue uh, like college towns, it's deep red. It's Marjorie Taylor Green red. And it's very tough to win there if you're a Democrat. It is especially tough to win there if you're a Democrat when, when Democrats hold power. And so it was one thing when we didn't have power, when Trump was on the ballot, uh, and it was clearly a change election in 2020, but it's a whole different thing in a midterm when all the wins are in our face. Before we move over to our next state of focus, which will be Wisconsin, I just wanted to ask Catherine if there was anything else that you might want to add um, to the Georgia piece. I mean, I think what you said at the top is just so interesting that it's almost unfortunately comical what is what is happening there in the SNL skits and, and what have you. But for our listeners today, 
anything else that they might want to take an extra look at as it you know comes to this specific election uh, for the Georgia Senate race? Well, I'm going to try to say something hopeful, and that's only because Matt's sentence just now was extraordinarily depressing um, as a as a person as an American <laughs> be, because be, well because frankly if if the Democrats lose Georgia which again you know Matt used the term favored um, in terms of of Herschel Walker so the thing that I will say that I do find a small bit encouraging and this is a little bit clutching at straws but Georgia does have a, a runoff system that you have to actually get fifty percent of the vote in order to do it and it appears that neither Walker or Warnock may actually reach the 50. So we're probably or potentially facing neither of them hitting 50 and doing a runoff in December. And what I will say about the runoff in December is that Georgia has a lot of different things on the ballot in November. I mean, there's the, you know, Stacey Abrams, Brian Kemp election, you know, there's a a slew of things on the ballot. But in December, there might well only be one race, the Senate race. And I do think that maybe people who are willing to walk into the voting booth and circle, okay, I'm going to go for Herschel Walker as I do my straight red state you know, line, those people may not have the motivation to take off work, to get in their car, to stand in line, you know, et cetera to support a candidate that even people who might be diehard Republicans would have to admit he's not a dream candidate across multiple different dimensions. And so I have to sort of hope maybe at that moment with the Senate on the line, which is frankly kind of what happened in January, right? When, when Warnock won the first time, it was again in the sort of runoff. So I'm going to only go with that, that I do feel like maybe if the election in Georgia isn't over in November, they're actually, I, I would think at that point, people might be more likely to vote for Warnock, that the turnout would be better for the Democrats at that point, especially if the Senate is on the line. Matt, thumbs up, thumbs down. <laughs> oh, I, any, I, I love naive? that. Yeah. Okay. I endorse that view of this race. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We, we love ending uh, on a positive note here, here on, this, on this roundup. It, it is truly, I mean, looking at all of the news, I mean, at, at the top of the episode, and we're going over everything we're going to discuss. It's like, how and where are we going to find the positivity in this episode? So thank you very much, um, Catherine, for that. So moving forward, Walker's debate performance was not the only wild ride of the week. In last week's Wisconsin Senate debate, Ron Johnson claimed that the FBI set him up with a corrupt briefing when he was warned that he could be a target for misinformation. It didn't sound like the crowd bought his story, but let's listen to this clip. The Ukrainian people, what we want, want what we want. They're they're defending their children, their freedom. Uh, I think it is good for us freedom-loving peoples to hang together and provide them the defensive weaponry so they can defend their territory. But again, I want a full accounting. And in in response to the wild charge of uh, uh, Lieutenant Governor Barnes, the FBI set me up with a corrupt, with a corrupt briefing and then leaked that to smear me. I am... No, I mean, right, let's, I'm sorry. Let's I'm sorry. Talk about, I, I mean, right. He is referring to corruption with the FBI, which I've been trying to uncover and expose. All right. 
I mean, watching both of your faces as we are listening to that clip, just just shaking your heads. I think I know the answer to the following, but Matt, I mean, what is your reaction to this actually coming out of a major party candidate's mouth and a sitting United States senator? I mean, what what's your what's your take? I mean, you've got to be kidding! Like, it's <laughs> it's preposterous on its face. It's why the people in the crowd laughed. I would have laughed because um, it's LOL. I mean, it's ridiculous. Ron Johnson is an appalling person and a terrible senator and and a liar. And he's lied about things big and small. He's lied about the 2020 election repeatedly. He lied about COVID. He lied about uh, ivermectin and, and he got people sick and killed, I am sure, because of those lies. So this is part of a pattern for Johnson, uh, but it nevertheless is uh, in its kind of baldness a new low for him. Catherine, your reaction either to the clip or just your take on the Wisconsin Senate race in general, anything we should be looking out for there? I mean, it seems tremendously sad that the Wisconsin Senate race is is even close. And of course, it's not actually close. It's close in a different direction. Uh, And it seems incredible that the law and order party is going to run on the FBI gave me a smear briefing and and that's the story he's going to go with. It's clear that people in the audience uh, didn't believe it, but it's also clear that there are people who might have laughed at that and saw it as ludicrous and are still going to walk into a voting booth and vote for Ron Johnson. Absolutely. Well, potentially going over to uh, more depressing news here. In Pennsylvania, Dr. Oz has narrowed uh, Democratic candidate John Fetterman's lead in the race for Senate. A new AARP poll has Fetterman up only two points at this time. Fetterman is still above water with likely voters, but only barely. 46% favorable to 45% unfavorable. In June, his favorable rating was about the same, but only 36% of voters saw him unfavorably. Over the last few months, Oz has been hammering Fetterman as soft on crime. Catherine, what are your what are your thoughts on that? What can Democrats do also to respond to hits specifically on issues um, like crime? So I will say the Pennsylvania race is one that I've been watching a lot, in part because I have two children who are new Pennsylvania voters um, as of uh, this year for the first time. And there's nothing that feels worse than voting in Massachusetts most of the time. So I'm frankly excited for them <laughs> to be able to actually have a vote that feels like it matters. So I'm, I'm doing my own, I'm doing my part in that. Um, I will say in terms of the Fetterman race, it seems so awful that Fetterman is getting targeted with this crime issue, but it really speaks to, I think, what the Republicans have been historically and present day very good at, which is creating this sense of fear, right? This idea of caravans of people are coming across the border, you know, to to attack us. And I think in, in some senses, you're seeing this both in Wisconsin and you're seeing it in Pennsylvania, that these attacks that sort of pull at the heartstrings are really, really intense. They are really emotional. And particularly for voters who may not be paying a lot of attention uh, to the policies, the programs, et cetera, 
it's very, very clear that they are persuasive. And that's, I think, really concerning. I think anything that the Democrats can do in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, but frankly, also in Ohio, Georgia, North Carolina, to create a sense of a different sort of urgency in terms of pulling at emotion. And I know we're going to talk about this, I think, in the next segment, but this idea of the the link between in psychology, we call it sort of cognitive processing versus emotional processing. And uh, Democrats often are going for cognition and it's not necessarily effective. So moving from the uh, emotional and psychological components of the election, Matt, curious what you think Democrats can do to respond to these hits on issues like crime from the, you know, political perspective. Yeah, we've been warning that this was going to be a problem since 2020 because it was a huge problem then. I mean, as you will recall, of course, we won the presidential election in 2020, but we lost 14 House races in the same ballot, a net of 14, which is not supposed to happen. And uh, when we looked at those races carefully, what we found was the thing that hurt the most were attacks on crime. To fund the police was the was the major thing. And uh, what what we found was that Democrats who did not respond forcefully to the charge that they are weak on crime lost as a result because, to Catherine's point, it triggers fear, and uh, fear is a very powerful driver of voter behavior. Uh, But when they did respond and they made it clear that the things that their Republican opponents were saying about them were false, uh, they were able to mitigate the damage from those attacks. And I think what we're seeing in this cycle is that is happening in some places. So, for example— In the House races, uh, like Abigail Spamberger's race in Virginia, she has been attacked as soft on crime, as all Democrats have, and she has said, that is baloney. I uh, am a former federal law enforcement agent. My father was a cop. Uh, I have voted to fund the police. She's been very forthright about pushing back, and I think it is absolutely vital that Democrats do that. They have got to take the issue head on. They can't dodge it or or sidestep it. They've got to make clear that they understand that people are afraid of the rise in crime and that they share that that, uh, view that we need to do something about it. Uh, I will say this, though, about Fetterman, uh, which is uh, he is an iconoclastic guy. He's different than other candidates for all the obvious reasons. I mean, he wore shorts to, you know, a thing with the president. Like most Senate candidates don't do that. Um, and and he's he's taken some interesting stands. He's, you know, like legalization of drugs beyond marijuana, those kinds of things. And he's stuck to his guns on that, I think, in an interesting way. But what he has done in his race is he has made it not about ideology, but about identity. Uh, and what he's, the, the case that he's prosecuted against Dr. Oz is that Oz is a rich, out-of-touch New Jersey weirdo uh, who likes crudite and the Dallas Cowboys and and he, and is out of touch with the people of Pennsylvania. And I think that that's been a very good, uh, you know, road for Fetterman to go down, to kind of keep it out of the ideological battle, which has been hurting our candidates elsewhere, and make it more about who really would represent Pennsylvania. So the reason I have to hope for Fetterman is that I think he's done that well, and I hope that's going to work. So I actually think that is the perfect segue into this um, next piece. So last week, President Obama sat down with Pod Save America, and he warned Democrats that they need to make sure they are not a buzzkill. Let's take a listen to that clip. I think where we get into trouble sometimes is when we try to suggest that some groups, because 
they historically have been victimized more, that somehow they have a status that's different than other people and that we're going around scolding folks if they don't use exactly the right phrase or you know, that, that, that identity politics becomes the principal lens through which we view you know, uh, our, our various political challenges. And to me, I think that that, for a lot of average folks, ends up feeling as if you're not speaking to me and my concerns, or for that matter, my kids' concerns and their future. It feels as if I'm being excluded from that conversation rather than brought into the conversation. So Obama went on to say that he ran into trouble when he would get quote, a little too professorial and sounded like he was giving a bunch of, quote, policy gobbledygook. And so, Matt, I think this ties into exactly what you were saying about the Fetterman race. So I'm curious, what is your reaction to this Obama clip and to his warning about being a buzzkill? I wish it could be injected directly into the veins of every Democrat (laughs) in the world. Uh, I mean, Barack Obama sees the playing field very, very clearly. It's why a, an African-American guy named Barack Hussein Obama could get himself elected president twice because he understands politics at a very fundamental level. And what he is saying is vitally important for my party to understand. And, and it's really two very important points. The first is that we have to be careful not to play up, not to to play into the hands of Republicans who are trying to call us all a bunch of woke socialists uh, who think everybody uh, is you know born evil, and um, and that these that microaggressions matter more than than macroaggressions. That that uh, and he is right about that. That that is that is a, a an, an idea that Republicans are trying to use to attack Democrats, and it can be effective. And we have to be careful not to uh, give them ammunition. The second is the point that Catherine and I were touching on earlier, which is that in politics, emotion matters a lot more than than cognition. And and, uh, she can talk about the psychology of that. From my perspective, what that means is you tell stories rather than list out your policy achievements. I think one person doing this extraordinarily well is Tim Ryan, who's running for Senate in Ohio. Now, it's a big uphill battle in Ohio. Ohio is a very red state. But Ryan is running the best Senate race I have ever seen in 35 years in politics, in part because he is turning everything, including the very substantial policy achievements of the Biden years, uh, into a story about why why that should matter to the people of Ohio, and he's doing it really well. When I think about that campaign, I think about when the um, student debt, uh, all of that information was coming out out of the Biden White House and what their plans were. Tim Ryan immediately went you know, out with the press release talking about the direct impact on Ohioans and just brought it home. And so I, I couldn't agree more. He's, he's doing that particularly well. And so, Catherine, a question for you. How can Democrats focus less on explaining policy positions and more on meeting voters where they are? I know Matt just talked about the storytelling, but from your you know, expertise, what do you think? So first of all, I really don't like the term professorial as being a negative, but anyway, <laughs> all right, sorry. I, I just had to say that as it's a, you know, a little bit of a slander there. The, but, the former um, president used yeah. it on himself, but <laughs> we will we make go. sure he knows. We'll make sure he knows. <laughs> 
Um, but to, uh, to, to point out my own uh, personal example, I'm teaching a class this semester in social psychology, and I described a term in October that's something called counterfactual thinking, which was a new term, of course, for my students, which is, you know, playing through how things could have gone differently. So I described the term, I, you know, had a PowerPoint slide of what it means, et cetera, and they, you know, sort of dutifully took notes. But then I told a story about, a, that was from a book about 9-11, about a man who was working at Counter Fitzgerald, uh, asked his assistant uh, to walk down to the lobby, to take the elevator down to the lobby and, and go welcome in uh, one of his clients who had just arrived. And as the secretary stood up to, to go into the elevator, he remembered she was very pregnant, you know, eight months pregnant. And he said, no, 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 you sit down. You know, I'm going to go down to the, to the elevator. And of course, Matt's expression, he knows where I'm going with this. So, so he went down to the lobby, the plane hit the building and, and the very pregnant secretary died and he lived. And I will say that that story is what stuck with my students, not my definition of here's counterfactual thinking and here's the exact definition and you should know this for the exam. But, you know, and, and these, of course, are students who were not alive during 9-11. You know, these are students who it's it's a historical fact. It's not a, I remember watching it on TV. And, and that, the comments from students about that reminded me in my own professorial thinking that what I have to do is to tell the stories and, and that the stories are what they're going to remember about this term counterfactual thinking. The other thing that I wanted to say, and this really, again, dovetails with what Matt said, and I think also the comments of Barack Obama. So I teach at Amherst College. Uh, we have had a very, very science-based approach to COVID uh, for throughout the pandemic. We sent students home on March 9th, which was, we were one of the first schools to do so. And yet at a faculty meeting two days ago, I stood up in front of all of my colleagues and I said to the president and the provost, our current COVID policy is absurd. And, and here is our COVID policy currently to this day. And this is a school that has all the students, faculty, and staff have to be vaccinated. We all have to have boosters. And yet currently to this day, I have to teach in an N95 mask and all of my students are wearing an N95 mask. And, and this is like beyond woke. It's ludicrous. Um, at a school in which everybody is vaccinated and boosted, we are still wearing the masks. And it's absurd. And so to me, this what is the relevance to policy other than me just sort of whining about it? It has to do with... I think it's performative. I think it's become performative in a way of like, we are so liberal and so politically correct that we're going to wear the masks through the end of time. And to me, that is a risk I think that Democrats take of being like, I am so woke that, you know, we are going to, you know, uh, be in, in an extreme. I mean, as Carvel said, you know, this defund the police um, is where the sort of attack on Democrats as being soft on crime comes from. And, and to me, it's all part of the performative politics that I think is dangerous in a campus setting. And I think it's really dangerous in national politics. So President Obama also talked about how people can often feel like they're walking on eggshells and that they want people to acknowledge that sometimes you can say the wrong thing or make a mistake. Here's the example that he used. You know, sometimes, you know, people just want to not feel as if uh, they are 
walking on eggshells. Uh, and, and, and they want some acknowledgement that life is messy and that all of us at any given moment, uh, can, you know, uh, say things the wrong way, you know, make mistakes. Uh, Michelle talks, uh, about her mother-in-law or her mother, my mother-in-law, who is a, a extraordinary one. As Michelle points out, she's 86. You know, and sometimes, you know, trying to get the right phraseology when we're talking about issues, Michelle's like, that's like her trying to learn Spanish. It doesn't mean she shouldn't try to learn Spanish, but it means that sometimes she's not going to get the words right. Uh, and that's okay. Right. And, and, and that attitude, I think, uh, of just being a little more real and a little more grounded is, is something that I think makes it goes a long way in, in counteracting what is a systematic um, this, the, the systematic propaganda that I think is being pumped out by Fox news and all these other outlets all the time. So I think, you know, based on what you were just talking about, Catherine, you know, having the facts, knowing the issues, but also sometimes getting it wrong or things being messy, et cetera. I mean, can you talk a little bit about how the fear of ridicule could stop someone from even trying to evolve in their thinking? I, I think it's very challenging because the reality is you grow up in the world in which you grow up. His example of it's like trying to learn Spanish. So, you know, my college students, you know, start a discussion with, and I use, you know, he, she, or I use she, they, and it really flows off their tongue. And for those of us who grow up thinking, no, it's not they is, it's they are, and they has to refer to a singular person, it can be very, very um, intimidating to sort of say, how do I start that? Because I don't want to be wrong and I don't want to say the wrong thing. But I think the challenge within that is we also then fail to connect with people, right? We fail to be willing to make errors. I was spent last weekend at a board meeting. I'm on the, the board for a summer camp, uh, a sleepaway camp. And we had a presentation from somebody who came in to talk about DEI issues. And, and what he said, and I appreciated it so much, is that you have to be willing to make mistakes and people have to be willing to sort of forgive you your mistake and then say, oh, you know, I'm sorry, you know, I used he and I should have used they, or, you know, I used she and I should have used he. And you have to be willing to make mistakes in that. I think many of us have have struggled to sort of learn the new terminology about pronouns. Uh, people who have names that are perhaps less typically seen. So, you know, my name is Catherine. No one really, everybody misspells Catherine. You can spell Catherine 85 different ways and, and pretty often it's with a K or a Y or, you know, not how I spell it, but pretty much people say Catherine as it said. But many people have names that are not as familiar and being willing to say somebody's name and be wrong and then say, did I, did I mess that up? And I'm sorry. And let me try again. And being willing to have that conversation to me, I think is really important. And that does, yeah, sometimes it involves failure and embarrassment the first time. So on the flip side, sometimes there is an assumption of bad intent when someone doesn't know the right word to use and they might make an innocent mistake. So Matt, curious for your perspective on how this is playing into our politics. You know, it, it feels like this is something that's alive and well, that people can take an innocent mistake. And again, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, but really manipulate that, especially in this political landscape. And so I'm curious for your perspective on that. Well, I think, uh, first of all, I very much agree with Catherine and President Obama that uh, we are in a cultural moment that uh, really punishes 
innocent mistakes um, and sometimes doesn't punish not innocent mistakes. There's a lot of stuff that's gone out there. Some of the things we talked about with Herschel Walker, uh, that was a doozy of a mistake that he made in um, his stance on abortion and his paying for abortions. Uh, but he is uh, apparently at least not being punished all that much for, for really m- malfeasance. And the flip side of that is the people who uh, do kind of come after you in a swarm on social media for, you know, stepping, uh, making one misstep, I think, are really doing damage to to progressives and to Democrats because the impression that they're leaving with voters is that they are intolerant in a very fundamental way. And um, again, I'll leave to Catherine the psychology, but the politics of intolerance are very bad. Um, if, if, if you suggest to a group of people that you think they're bad, uh, they're not going to respond well to that politically. The worst moment of Barack Obama's political life was when he talked uh, in an off-the-cuff way about how, you know, uh, white people cling to guns and religion, non-college whites. Um, and a very similar moment for Hillary when she talked about the basket of deplorables. We know what they meant. We could we can explain it. They didn't mean to slander a huge group of people, but it was very bad because uh, people really took it the wrong way. So I think, I think this is a very tough moment for us uh, politically, in part because of the acceleration effect of social media. So I was going to ask the question of what drives us to assume that there's bad intent, but you just answered that perfectly. And so I guess my my final question for the segment, and I'll uh, send it back first to you, Matt, and then to Catherine. What do you think we can do to help shift how we respond to some of these innocent mistakes? You know, not automatically assuming bad intent before not. How do we help maybe also voters see the difference between a Herschel Walker or, you know, a slip from Secretary Clinton? I mean, what is it that you think folks can be doing to help kind of see that see that difference right now with this political landscape? It's a very tough question to answer because I, I and and I think I'm less qualified to answer it than Catherine. The only thing that occurs to me is that we can be forgiving of people who are our true political adversaries, which is to say, if somebody uh, who on, is on the different side of your own party or is in the other party makes what could be easily characterized as an innocent mistake and then apologizes for it, you need to accept that apology. Um, the thing is, apology is out of vogue on the right now. Um, they, they lean into every misstep that they make and, and they follow Trump's lead, which is never admit mistake and never apologize. And so how do you deal with that? How right. do you, how do you, um, you know, demonstrate good behavior about letting mistakes go when they will never admit a mistake? So I'm kind of at a loss. Catherine? Well, so it's right. So I agree with everything that Matt said. And and what I was thinking, I mean, I had two thoughts about it. One, Matt made the excellent point about there on the one side, there is forgiving innocent mistakes, you know, showing people some grace. But he also made another really important point was that we also often overlook intentional mistakes. And I'm reminded of David Perdue, who'd served with Kamala Harris, you know, in the Senate, and then was like, Kamala Mala. Rambala, whatever. I mean, it was like, you know, openly. And that was not, he knows how to pronounce her name. He knew it and he was doing it for a fact. And that's like the exact opposite. But I also, you know, fully agree with Matt that I think the challenge right now is there really is an unequal 
standard. So when Al Franken was accused of engaging in some clearly kind of inappropriate sexual sort of, you know, photos or misconduct or, you know, whatever. He didn't touch anybody. He didn't assault anybody. He didn't whatever. But the Democrats were like, you're gone. Like you're, you are out. And there are reports that, you know, Herschel Walker, I think credibly has been accused of trying to shoot a uh, former wife. Um, certainly, you know, what we saw in the Alabama Senate race um, was that, Many people continue to support Ray Moore. I mean, the 16-year-old girls. I mean, so it does strike me as there's this really weird juxtaposition of, you know, within within Democrats, it's, you know, you, you can't do anything, um, you know, that's even remotely crossing a line. And, and the line is not the same. The line is just remotely not the same because Ray Moore and Al Franken are not remotely close to each other. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> can I make can I make one more point on this? Yeah, please. Because um, we saw an example of, of exactly what Catherine was just talking about this week. Um, Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, made this point, I thought, very well, which was she was asked about the horrible racist talk that was picked up on a tape that was released uh, among uh, some of the members of the L.A. City Council. And she's, she was asked, well, isn't it a double standard? Here you have Democrats that are being racist. And she said, no, in fact, it's the exact opposite. When we do these things, we drum those people out. And, they, um, and Biden called for them to resign, and then they did. Uh, the exact opposite happens with Republicans. They double down, they lean in. And, and that is the reason it is so hard to see how we fix this problem, because they don't seem at all interested in fixing it. So to all of our listeners out there, if you have the answer, if you have additional thoughts, you have a handful of very curious uh, experts here who, who would love to hear from you. So, so please be in touch um, if you have thoughts on this in particular, of course, anything from the episode. So now that we are up to speed on some of the biggest stories of the week, let's talk about what we are watching. Matt, what do you have for us? Uh, I am watching the Ohio Senate race. I think that is, in some ways, the most interesting race of the year. Remember, uh, it's a very red state. It went heavily for Trump both times. Uh, but uh, Sherrod Brown got reelected in between. And so it is not impossible for a Democrat to win, but with all the headwinds, that makes it even harder. As I said earlier, Tim Ryan, watch Tim Ryan. Watch the way he is uh, conducting himself in this race, the ads that he's running, the case that he's prosecuting against J.D. Vance, and the way that he is telling stories to the electorate about what he would do for them as senator. It is a masterclass, and I think everybody should pay attention. Great. And Catherine, what are you watching? So I'll just say that I donated for the first time to Tim Ryan's uh, Senate campaign after the first debate, because I was like, you know what, even if he's behind in the polls, and even if this is not the best use of my dollars, I psychologically felt like I should support him. And I and I, I hope that he can um, be successful. So I'm watching two headlines. I'm going to cheat a little bit and say two headlines from the Washington Post this week. One is, Americans care about democracy. Just not enough to save it. All right. So that, sorry, sorry. This is definitely a buzzkill, but I was like, that's so encouraging. And then so not encouraging, right? So sort of like, yeah, democracy, I like it, but you know, whatever. Um, and then the other one, which was juxtaposed either the same day or like right after was the pandemic has shift. Whites now more likely to die from COVID than blacks. And if that's not 
proof positive of a point that Matt made earlier about Ron Johnson probably getting people killed. I can't think of a better example of that, right? And the idea that at some point, like, if people are dying, wouldn't you think maybe the policy is it, you're you're not really being served by your elected officials if your grandmother has died? Or I mean, at this point, and I remember hearing something about an older person uh, dying of COVID and their children saying, we want to describe it in the obituary as suicide. And the newspaper was like, well, it's technically COVID. And they're like, it's not really COVID at this point if you've chosen not to be vaccinated and again, you know, going into different settings. So to me, the juxtaposition of those two headlines was just tremendously discouraging. So for my story, it it kind of goes off of, or very much, I think, goes off of what you were just saying. So the story I'm following is actually one that's been on my radar since 2018, when Phil Murphy was sworn in as governor. And his wife, Tammy Murphy, laid out her priority issue as first lady of the state. And she said that she was going to focus on infant mortality rates, especially the disproportionate impact on Black women and communities of color because they are the worst in New Jersey above and beyond. So earlier this week, there was a new report that showed maternal death rates jumped during the pandemic, contributing to 25% of the more than 1,000 deaths in 2021, and that Black women continue to be disproportionately impacted with death rates more than twice as high as white women. And the report's authors say contributing factors, and this was the part that really got me, may include pandemic-related stress and depression as well as reduced access to transportation and healthcare amid lockdowns. So it's two things. And I know, Catherine, we were talking about Amherst and the policies and kind of overcompensating in many ways. But this story and and this report that just came out, I think, is further realization that COVID just isn't over. And I know the higher-ups have said otherwise, and I know it's morphing, you know, into different ways. And Fauci's already come out talking about the new Omicron variant and the severity and all of that. But Maybe it's that the sheer devastation of the deaths in 2020 and 2021, you know, have really um, subsided, but it's both this story of the rise in maternal death rates, as well as I think for me, the stories and the reports that are going to come out on how issues like stress, depression, lack of access to transportation, healthcare, et cetera, as said in this report, how that really impacted um, a much larger group of people than just the sheer uh, death toll number that we were really following closely in the media. So definitely going to be staying up on that one. And so before we flip over to Politicology Plus, um, would love to know where we can find both of you on the internet. Catherine, we'll start with you. I am on Twitter at Sanderson Speaks and Instagram at Sanderson Speaking. And Matt? I'm on Twitter at at Third Way Matt B. And our website is thirdway.org. Awesome. And I am on Instagram at underscore Liz Gilbert. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, We'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.